welcome to this edition of The Ready Room. I'm Jen, and I'm one of the moderators on the Treks and Sci-Fi Forum. I also co-manage the Treks and Sci-Fi role-playing game that we often refer to as the RPG. In this episode, I will cover the resources we have available for the RPG on the Treks and Sci-Fi board. Let me begin by giving those of you who don't write in our game a little background. The RPG is a collaborative fan fiction. It's our Star Trek sandbox, if you will. The playground has been closed for a month to give our creative participants a chance to recharge, as these stories do take a lot of imagination and work to keep them flowing. There are 12 writers who are expected to return for our next plot, which will be a mirror universe story. We break our stories into seasons, and they usually last about three months. An outline is written at the beginning of the season to guide our writers, and the writers fill in the gaps with details written from their character or characters' perspectives through a series of forum posts. Oftentimes, our writers work together to write on their scenes. They pass their posts back and forth via email or personal messages until they're both satisfied with their writing and one of the collaborators posts the scene on the board. The USS Arabella NCC-81125 is the name of the starship in our story. It's an intrepid Class II light explorer. You could read more about the Arabella by going to the RPG section of the Trex and Sci-Fi Forum. On the forum board, click on the story so far, and at the top of the thread list, there's a section called USS Arabella Intrepid Class II. This post is a wealth of information regarding decks, offices, capabilities, emergency medical operations, rescue and evac operations, warp core equipment, mission types, production dates, etc. If you're a member of our RPG, please use that series of posts as a reference. You wouldn't want to write that your character went to their quarters on Deck 3 if you're not the captain. Only Captain Quinn's quarters are located there. Reply number 6 in the USS Arabella thread will tell you where the crew quarters are located. Reply number 10 in this same thread will give you the deck layout for every department, office, lab, VIP quarters, shuttle dock, deflector, etc, etc. Use it. It's a great resource. Another resource is the RPG rules. If you're a member and you haven't read these in a while, please brush up on them. If you're a listener who's interested in joining, read the RPG rules and then contact Kenny, who goes by Star Trek Fanatic 5 on the boards, or myself. It's pretty easy to contact me because I go by Jen on the boards. The OOC out of character thread is also a great resource. You can find this under the forum RPG game section on the Treks and Sci-Fi board. Here you'll find posts specific to our current season and conversations being had regarding the story and characters. In this section, you'll also find a posting of species active in the RPG at the top of the thread list. The character portraits thread is right under that. Here you'll find portraits of several of our characters. RPG resources is next. It is an awesome source of information for writers who aren't sure what to do next in the story. It contains links to books like the Starfleet Survival Guide, the Treks and Sci-Fi RPG Wiki, Starfleet Job Training, Starfleet General Orders and Regulations, General Trek Reference Material, Ships of the Galaxy, Treknology, Ranks, Basic Equipment, a link to a name generator, and information on the customs of Bajorans, Klingons, Romulans, Betazoids, 
Orions, Booleans, Ferengi, Andorians, and Vulcans. Use this thread to make your characters more believable. A map of the Star Trek universe is also located near the top of the out-of-character section. This map will help give you an idea of where certain planets are in relation to one another. Using this map, you can also locate various star bases, stations, and empires. Lastly, our story takes place a few years after Nemesis. This is a timeline in the Star Trek universe that has only been explored in the novels. The uniforms have changed, the technology is different, but it's still Star Trek. So, check out the sources I've discussed and get ready for the Mirror Universe. Read the OOC8 thread to learn more about the Mirror Universe timeline and our ideas for the upcoming story. Next Saturday, August 16th at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 12 p.m. Central, and 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, a Ready Room Skype call will be recorded with several of our writers to discuss the outline that was created for the main plot. Well, that's it for this special edition of The Ready Room. In the ones to follow, I will talk about creating and developing your characters, writing beginnings, middles, and ends, and making scenes. Until then, this is Jen, hailing frequencies closed. Welcome to this special edition of The Ready Room. I'm Jen, and I'm one of the moderators on the Trex and Sci-Fi Forum. I also co-manage the Star Trek role-playing game that we often refer to as the RPG. This week, I'll be producing a series of micro-episodes to help our writers prepare for the next season, which is scheduled to begin August 17th. In this episode, I will be offering ideas for fleshing out characters. First, let me say, I'm only an aspiring writer. I'm not an expert, and I don't pretend to be. Like many skills, writing is a craft that takes practice to get better at. Getting pointers from others, who are more seasoned than yourself, is a great way to hone that skill. I've also been listening to podcasts produced by professionals, like Michael A. Stackpold's The Secrets podcast, which you can find on iTunes. In addition to that, I've been reading anything I can on the topic of writing. You can also learn a lot by reading novels and picking up on how the author constructs his or her stories. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. It doesn't matter what you read. Both will pretty much help you become a better writer. As I've mentioned before, our story is written from the perspective of many characters. It's not exactly a novel because the point of view is so broad, and it's not exactly a television show or movie because you're actually in the character's head. This, by the way, is the most valuable tool you'll have as a writer, one that's not available to producers, actors, or directors. They can't really get into the character's head. They can only show you what's going on on the outside. But I'm putting the cart before the horse. I'll get to that a little later. Let's start with how to make your character real. I'm reading a book called Creating Characters, How to Build Story People by Dwight V. Swan. And I'm going to read a few things I thought would be most useful to those who are writing in our RPG. Chapter 4 is called Fleshing Out. How do you make a character real? You provide him with the appropriate tags, traits, and relationships. And here we go. Labeling. Assigning a story person a dominant impression is a primary step in character creation. But a dominant impression alone doesn't go far enough. Leave it at that and the character will end up a stick figure at best. A caricature, not a person. If he's to be any real use to you, you need to flesh him out. 
develop the picture of him in more detail, internally and externally, inside and out. Specifically, you need to give him tags, traits, and relationships. But before we go further, however, let's emphasize one point too often forgotten, especially by beginners. People are like tapestries. That is, each is woven of many threads, but some threads are more vivid and visible than others, like strands of red through a gray fabric. It's also important to remember that making a character too complex will kill him. A good character is a simulation of a complexity, not the real thing. Fairly clear and simple traits work best. Otherwise, the effect will be that given by a busy painting, one too cluttered with detail. So while ordinarily you'd want to go beyond the cartoon caricature level, try not to carry the development too far in depth that your people fall over the edge into total confusion. Thus, in life, we don't know most of our friends and neighbors in depth. They exist for us mainly in terms of dominant impression plus externals. Appearance, speech, mannerisms, attitudes, abilities, plus how we get along with them. With that caveat out of the way, let's get on to consideration of the tools you'll be using to flesh out story people, tags, traits, and relationships. Tags comes first. A tag is a label. It identifies a character and helps your readers to distinguish one person from another. Thus, a name is a tag, and it's important. It should identify him, characterize him, give your reader an idea of the kind of person he is and his role. Naming a bruiser Percival or Algaron may not be out of line. If a name isn't appropriate, well, see what Johnny Cash did with a boy named Sue. In any event, one way or another, a character acquires a name. Beyond this, what other tags does he need? Broken down into categories, ordinarily, we speak of tags of appearance, ability, speech, mannerism, and attitude. Appearance means that it might be nice if your readers had at least some idea of what your character looks like. Kojak's lollipop and shaved head are tags. So are Long John Silver's wooden legs and Adolf Hitler's mustache. Here, for example, is a tiny grandmother in Diane Curtis Reagan's The Perfect Age. As she reaches up, one small hand to anchor her stylish hat, which perfectly matched her tailored burgundy suit. Note, incidentally, that Reagan doesn't simply say, Miss Jones had small hands. She brings the tags on in action. Has the characters reach up the hand to anchor the hat. Furthermore, the hat itself constitutes a tag, for it's a stylish, perfectly matched, tailored burgundy suit. The result is an image of a particularly kind of grandmother, physically tiny, in all likelihood a woman of poise and good taste, a far cry from a frousy grandmother, or a gauche, ill-bred, vulgar grandmother, even though Reagan hasn't said so in so many words. The matter of mannerism, rubbing the chin, an eye tick, a frown, a racist laugh, also needs to be considered. Same for the character who doodles as he talks, or bites his lip, or continually smooths his hair, or sneaks glances into the mirror. Attitude is a manner of behavior patterns, a character's habitual way of reacting to a particular kind of situation. 
Mary Poppins' eternal cheeriness reflects an attitude, and so does Rambo's macho stance. Racism and sexism are also attitudes. Closely related to tags is the matter of ability or capability. The potential for a character to do whatever his role in the story calls for. If, for example, the story requires that he deal with a medical emergency, does he have the ability to do so? How about the skill to make a bomb, style a woman's hair, lay cement blocks, clear a fuel line? Failure to provide character with an ability to perform, as required believability, can destroy or make a story. How to reveal matters of ability? You as a fiction writer must think ahead and plant within your character the capability to deal with the demands of your story situation. You'll have to discover the tags or traits that fill the bill, then make reference to them later on as the story develops. The object of tags, remember, is to help your reader identify, differentiate, and distinguish. It's also important that you decide on each character's traits his or her habitual modes of response and patterns of behavior. Be aware that people do develop distinctive ways of reacting to life's demands and that these reaction patterns tend to become habitual. To this end, you need to ask yourself how you want a given person to behave in a particular kind of situation. Is this character a worrier, a soft touch, a grouch, a freeloader, a bully? Is she cruel, kindly, pious, a hypocrite? Selfish, unselfish, honest, honest only when observed, considerate, unaware. So you decide. Then thrust the character into situations that will give her the opportunity to show the stuff she's made of before a crisis arrives, so your readers won't be taken aback when the character behaves the way you need her to behave. What about relationship? Call it the way we interface with others, our associations with and reactions to people with whom we deal come in contact with. Each of those contacts and dealings is different. How do we respond to each of these people? How do we feel about them? And yes, we do feel about them and respond to them, each and every one, even if it's only in terms of standing up straighter, watching our grammar, or not making an off-color joke. For fiction purposes, however, we must consider these relationships a good deal more closely. Those individual connections will determine how our characters act and react, how they respond to things their story associates say and do as your epic progresses. Your most useful tool is handling the obviously complex issue of relationship will be habitual people watching, coupled with the reading of both fiction and psychology. It also may help you in this area to bear two principles in mind. The first, likes attract, the second, opposites attract. Now, obviously neither of these aphorisms is universally true, but they are sound often enough to prove useful when you don't know how to work through the scene. Is a heroine smitten because she and the hero are both Alabama wasps and love swimming, tennis, camping, computer graphics, and iris culture? Or is the attraction based on romantic fascination? Another point you need to consider is whether to cast a given character to type or against type. To put this in down-to-earth form, consider your friend Alex, an individual whom will arbitrarily label with a dominant impression as a scholarly professor. In keeping with this label, 
and helping to translate it to visual terms, we give Alex stoops shoulders, pale face, a frequently furrowed brow, a tendency to long pauses and staring off blankly into space, and a book always in hand. And so establishing and describing Alex, we're taking the approach termed as casting to type. That is, we're accepting traditional stereotyping, the kind of patterning that gives us the Irish cop, the dumb blonde, and the garrulous oldster. Against type means rejecting that image in favor of a more fresh and original picture, one that makes the character an individual rather than a stick figure. Which doesn't mean that the characters cast to type are necessarily to be avoided. Types have their place, particularly when your minor people are considered. Were we to want to cast Alex against type, however, we would make him egotistical, belligerently opinionated, scowling and with a head thrust forward as he attempts to force his ideas on everyone within earshot. He'd still come through as scholarly, but a different kind of scholarly. Is this enough to characterize Alex for your readers? Mightn't they appreciate it if you'd sharpen the focus? Perhaps make the picture more graphic. Take his work, for example. There are professors, and there are professors. Some are more drawn to campus politics than to teaching. Others like to ride the gravity train, slogging off paper grading and anything else that sounds like work on graduate assistants. His preoccupations, the interests that absorb him, also play a role. As a scholar, is his area of scholarship the issue? Or is his scholarship merely a financial facade, while his real focus is on world peace or real estate or Mayan artifacts, whatever you choose for him will both help to individualize him and influence his behavior in your story. Consider too your character's weakness. What flaws do you want to show in the course of the story? And yes, characters do have them. We all do. And you'll be wise to reveal them for the perfect person tends to disgruntle readers. Why give a character flaws and weakness? Because they constitute tools that you can use to help control reader reaction to a character, to make the reader like or dislike her, accept or reject her. Bear in mind, however, that all such traits are abstract and general. Behavior is concrete and specific. What does he or she do is what demonstrates any given point. That's what's important. To that end, you must devise incidents and specific details that show the trait in action. Never just say a character is irritating, make him do something recognizably irritating. Telling simply isn't good enough. This is printed fiction. If you want him to be likable, admirable, courageous, or such, figure out a way to prove it in action. That's what writing's all about. Also, to a degree, you must use what I term the testimonial technique. That is, let some other character recall or describe succinctly a convincing incident that makes the point. How far will he go in his efforts to attain a goal? What are his limitations? Will he lie, steal, kill, reject a friend? You need to decide. What will he have to do? You need to ask, how can I make it believable that he'll do it? Is his behavior a matter of attitude, function, potential? Where do you get all this material? The answer is through observation, a study of living, breathing human beings in their native habitat, and that includes yourself. Nothing will substitute for watching, on the one hand, and probing your own most secret thoughts on the other. 
neither should you neglect the work of other fiction writers. Their work offers insight on a wide variety of levels. How do you motivate a character? You devise something that he or she must change in order to win happiness. When we talk about the world within a character, at root, we're discussing motive, a mental force that induces an act, a determining impulse, intention, purpose, design, as one dictionary puts it. It is the spine of any story. Motive in fiction is another name for a desire for a change on the part of some character or other. It works this way. Happiness is the universal human goal. Unhappiness, regrettably, is all too often the human state. For an individual to move from unhappiness to happiness ordinarily means that some aspect of his or her situation, state of affairs, or state of mind must be changed. Change may be anything from getting a raise to humiliating an enemy to experiencing the feeling of youth again. Stated thus bluntly and simplistically, the picture is obvious. Give a character so compulsive a desire to make a given change that he can't let it be, and you have the basis for a story. In life, the issue may come through as, as a bit less easily understood. Why? Because in life, we can't see inside other people's heads. Back when I was a boy, a young man of perhaps 18 or 20 lived down the block from us. Though he bothered no one, he perpetually wandered about at loose ends, jobless, and clearly a bit strange. People felt sorry for his decent, hardworking parents. Then one day, abruptly, the situation changed. Police appeared with the young man in tow, first questioning his family, then searching his shed behind his house. The findings chilled the neighborhood. Unsuspected by anyone, the young man apparently lived in a macabre inner life that saw him secretly prowling local cemeteries while his parents assumed him to be asleep. A couple of nights before, he had reopened a grave and mutilated the corpse of a young woman buried that afternoon. His secrets remained secrets until, returning to the cemetery, he was caught in the act, because none of us could see inside of his head. A character either in life or in fiction may, for his own personal reasons, intentionally convey a false impression. Item. The girl with a hideously bad disposition who's doing her best to project the aura of sweetness until she can land the man she wants. Item. The man who oozes perfect poise until you discover him weeping in the company restroom. Item. The woman who wallows in piety for the benefit of her church friends while on the job she embezzles bank funds. Item. The friendly retiree whose young manhood included years working in a gas chamber in the Nazi death camp in Poland. So much subterfuge, so much deceit, so many false impressions. Yet you as a writer can't afford to be taken in by such deceptive masks. Remember, always, that you are the creator, first and last. You are in control. Deceit and subterfuge are merely tools you use to give your story people depth and interest. Understanding their dynamics, you bring them on as needed, neatly packaged and inserted into your characters' heads. How do you gain the necessary insight into the human reaction process? Specifically, what makes people tick? Shall we start with a basic premise? The thing all of us seek, at root, is what we call happiness. What constitutes happiness? Call it a state of mind that exists in a person when, 
his bodily needs satisfied, he also feels a sense of self-importance, self-worth. That sense of self-worth takes all sorts of forms. It sparks again when a doctor saves a life, a lawyer wins a case, a farmer banks the check for a bumper crop, a housewife wins a garden show. Each finds what, for the moment, he calls happiness, fulfillment of function, an academic gobbledygook. Such a state may prove murderously difficult to achieve, however. Why? Because the world and life keep throwing trouble at us. Circumstances that block our efforts to attain our goals, shatter our dreams, make us feel helpless and ridiculous and unimportant. Yet in spite of everything, most of us keep striving. Also, happiness is different things to different people. Inheriting a fortune may, to me, bring only panic at the thought of the responsibilities that will ensue. Or, I may so thrill to the excitement of battle that I forget the fear of death. This is the luxury which we as writers can't afford. We must learn to pay attention to human behavior in all its varied shades and nuances. Most especially, we need to become reflex familiar with those twists and turns that influence the manner in which people's lives developed. Why? Because they'll provide insight into possible paths our characters may follow and actions they may take. The person or character may not know he's scared. Or if he does, he may not know just what it is he's scared of. Fear of responsibility may lie in the heart of the secret inner dread. I have hypochondriac friends whose blind panic at the thought of disease has immobilized them for life. The fear of failure has locked hundreds and thousands of millions to private cells of never trying. Direction. Well, there's a lot more to this book and I'm not going to read everything. So again, if you're interested in reading it, it's called Creating Characters, How to Build Story People by Dwight V. Swan. D-W-I-G-H-T-V. S-W-A-I-N. That's it for this special edition of The Ready Room. And the one that follows, Making Scenes. Until then, this is Jen, hailing frequencies closed.